So good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Mike. Uh, yes, my name is Mike, yes. <laughs> uh, I apologize. I am slightly sleep deprived today. Uh, and I am people that even know that have been praying, you know, get together, we pray and, and um, believe uh, someone was saying, like, Lord, you know, just make sure that Mike is clear and coherent and that people understand what, what you're trying to say to them. And, and I was just thinking, like, amen, amen. It's going to have to be a work of the Lord for, you to, for me to be coherent at all this morning. So, anyways, uh, it's great to have to be here. It's great to see you all. Um, I don't recognize all the faces in here, which is awesome. I love seeing new faces. Uh, so a lot of you guys might not know who I am. I used to attend here uh, about up to about two months ago, I was a, a pastor here, and uh, then God called uh, myself and, and my family to the uh, wonderfully dry and hot state of Nevada. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, But uh, even though I wish it was under better circumstances, I'm very blessed to be here with you guys this morning. And uh, in many ways, this is still my church home. You guys are my church family. And uh, definitely felt that just even when I walked in the doors this morning and just seeing all of your guys' faces and smiles and talking with you all, it's, it's a real joy and a blessing to be here. So, you know, Pastor Bill asked if I can come out and cover for him as he continues to recover. So blessed to see that video. I, I can't tell you how crazy and how miraculous his recovery has been. Uh, Chris and I were on the phone with him just even a week ago and hearing and seeing the difference um, in just a week and how quickly he's recovering. And I don't want to spoil all the great things that the Lord has been doing in Bill's life, so I'll let Bill speak to that. But the Lord is doing an amazing work in Bill's life. Um, he's, he's keeping Bill, sustaining Bill. But I also see that God's doing an incredible work here at Mountain View. And even in the two short months I've been gone, I, I see an incredible difference in the heart and the spirit of this church. Not that it was bad before, but just how all of you guys are starting to step up even more and, and the, how the Spirit is growing you all and leading you all and how, um, just I guess maybe even just having a fresh perspective coming back after being gone for a while and just seeing that, that the spirit of love and, and of caring is still in this church. And I just want to thank you guys for that and encourage you guys to continue to do that. Uh, anyways, I'm blessed to be here today. And speaking of Bill and uh, also uh, a few others like the, the Nellises are sick, uh, let's lift them all up in prayer and also lift up the message. Don't we follow, Lord, we just lift up our pastor to you, God, and Lord, we just pray that you would just continue to heal Bill and restore him. Lord, just uh, may you continue to grow him, Lord, and in this period of, of trial, Lord, that he would just continue to grow closer to you, that he would hear from you. Lord, I just echo Susie's statements, Lord, that we truly desire him to come back, but we also truly desire him to relax and to heal. And Lord, we just pray that this would be a uh, a forced time of sabbatical for, for him. And Lord, we know he works hard and diligent, Lord, for this body, and we just pray during this time, Lord, that you would just minister to him. And Lord, we look, lift up the analysis, Lord. Lord, we just pray for continued healing in, in, in their family, Lord, as they recover. And um, Lord, just lift up this body as a whole, Lord. Just continue to bless them and strengthen them. Continue to lead them and guide them. And Lord, truly may your word be spoken today and may our hearts receive it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to do things a little bit differently than we're used to as a Calvary Chapel church. Uh, instead of going verse by verse, we're going to be doing a character study on the man of... McNulty? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that's English. Can, can, does anyone know... Can, uh, thank you, thank you. Someone, someone gets the, the, the awkward pause. Okay, so let's, let's try. Oh. So let's try that one more time. So today we're going to be doing a study on. Yeah. Hey, all right. I need some verbal confirmation that you guys are still alive. So I appreciate that. Um, and so we're going to be in the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 25. And the reason why we're not going to go verse by verse is because the life of Jacob spans about 10 chapters uh, in the book of Genesis, and I'm pretty sure you guys would revolt maybe around chapter four or so into that study. Uh, so we're going to do kind of a high-level overview of Jacob's life. We're going to be jumping around through those chapters. But with that said, I still want to encourage you guys, there, you know, you can be in the Bible more than just on Sunday mornings. Surprise! Um, and so, you know, this week, spend some time in Genesis chapter 25 through 35. Read 
about Jacob. It's a fascinating life. I wish, again, I could go verse by verse. We can spend hours and hours and hours looking at his life and learning from it. Um, and even though we can't do it this morning, you can certainly do it this week. So please, please, please uh, do read those 10 chapters this week if you can. So let's take a look at Jacob's story together at the very beginning. Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, right? It's not the, just the beginning of Jacob's story, but it's also the beginning of our story. And in that first week of creation, God created Adam and Eve. He created humankind. And Adam and Eve, they ate of a fruit of the, you know, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they sinned. And they, they revolted against God and they were kicked out of the garden. Now, you know, I promise I'm going to be quick. We, we have quite a bit of material to cover here. But before we get there, just a quick side note. Um, how many of you guys think that fruit was an apple? Can I get it? Okay, you guys are way smarter than me. Um, I can't, I mean, I grew up a Christian, and I, I thought it was an apple for years. And then, like, one day I was, like, rereading the text. I'm like, oh, wait, it doesn't say apple. It says fruit. And, and then I started, like, I got really curious, so I started digging into it even more. And, like, likely it wasn't even an apple at all. What is wrong with apples? Like, why did it get this bad rep within the church? Like, seriously, it's like, just as fruit, but like, did some theologian back in like the second century go like, I hate apples and I just, I'm just gonna propagate this myth in the church, you know, like, yeah, it was an apple, don't eat apples. But, but, and then we like, so we have that. And then on the other hand, like growing up, we hear like an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And so I'm like, I'm trying to figure this out, like, okay, as a kid, like growing up in the church, like on one hand, like eating an apple causes me to sin, but on the other hand, it keeps the doctor away. I'm kind of conflicted here, you know, like I, I want to be healthy, but I don't want to sin. Uh, anyways, just to put your mind at ease, the Bible says a fruit. It does not say an apple. Apples are a-okay. You know, God is a-okay with you eating apples. So today at lunch, eat a salad, healthy salad. Feel free to take that apple, keep the doctor away. No sin, you're, you're gonna be good. God is, God is good, apples are good. They're fibrous, I'm all for it. So anyways, I said I'd be quick, massive tangent. Anyways, back to it. So let's buckle up, we're gonna go through 2,000 years in 60 seconds. Um, anyone have a stopwatch? Okay, let's see if I can do this. <clears throat> so Adam and Eve kicked out of the, the garden. Adam's fourth great-grandson, uh, was Enoch. Enoch is rather noted for taking like the best limo ride ever. He was taken up and got to be with God before he had died. Uh, before he got taken up, he fathered uh, another famous guy by the name of Methuselah, who, and I, I didn't actually verify this, but I'm assuming he should be in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest dude ever. Um, and Methuselah was the grandfather of another notable, notable guy named Noah. Uh, he's famous for sailing the world's largest ocean because at that point in time, the ocean was the entire world. Uh, so he was a rather noted sailor. And Noah was, at this point, the 10th generation of man. So I think that would make him like eight great-grandsons of Adam. And Noah was born roughly 1,000 years after creation. All right, so first 1,000 years, about 30 seconds. Let's see if I can do the next 1,000 in another 30 seconds. Now, 10 generations after Noah, so the 20th generation of man, or the 18th great-grandson of Adam, um, I'm not going to go great, 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 because I can't, I can't count that. Um, Abraham was born approximately 2,000 years after creation. Now, Abraham was given a promise, right? I think most of us know this, from God that he would be the father of the Jewish nation, and that promise was delivered and arrives with the birth of the promised son of Isaac. Now, Isaac has two twin sons. Uh, one of them, I bet you, you know, and if we went back a slide, you'd probably see the name. Can anyone guess who I'm going to be talking about? Jacob. There we go. Someone, someone's on to me. And then the other one is Esau. And, of course, I said it out of order. So Esau came first and then Jacob. All right. So now I have a confession to make. Full disclaimer, I'm a big fan of disclaimering things and showing personal bias before talking about someone or something. I don't, didn't like Jacob. Not a, not a fan. Um, potentially even, like, hatred would be on the verge of it, but like, apparently hatred is kind of too strong of a word to say from the pulpit about someone. So strongly, strongly, strongly dislike Jacob. 
uh, even so much so, so like I would have a temptation when I get to him in Genesis, I'd kind of want to skip over him, uh, get a kind of a weird, salty, bad, vinegary taste in my mouth when I'd see his name. And, and the reason for that, if you don't know much about Jacob, is that Jacob is basically the epitome of everything I don't like about people. <laughs> the, he was a man who, well, let's see here, let's, let's find the, the laundry list here. Uh, he was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a swindler. He actively deceived uh, the blind and feeble. Uh, he tricked people, especially people that were very close to him, his family and friends, uh, for his own personal gain. And, and just pretty much a rotten individual, like the last guy you would want to be your best friend. And, and that sickens me, especially when I see someone taking advantage of someone who's weak. Not a fan of Jacob. And as I was doing the study, so the question is like, why would you do a character study of Jacob on a Sunday morning? Well, it's because when I was looking at him at one point, God showed me something interesting about Jacob. Is that Jacob isn't necessarily a horrible, evil villain. He's not like the, the Eastern European dastardly dog uh, going after the moose and squirrel. Um, he, he was a man who was in bondage. He was always striving, trying to make things happen his own way, in his own strength, trusting really no one other than himself, not trusting God or his plan. This is a man who was enslaved to sin. But fortunately, and this is why I want to look at Jacob this morning, is that God in his infinite grace doesn't leave Jacob in bondage. He doesn't leave Jacob to suffer in his sin. God had a game plan that we'll see laid out today through three different encounters that God has with Jacob. And it shows us how we can live a, live a life free from the bondage of sin, free from the life of striving and of trying to do things our own way. And live a life not in stress and strife and trying to work things out, but rather a life of peace, a life of rest, a life of contentment in the Lord and trusting what God has for us. Which I think we can all agree, we all need a little bit more of in this day and age, huh? How many of you guys have been feeling a little anxious, a little stressed, a little depressed, a little exhausted? Um, I certainly have. So after that rather lengthy intro, uh, let's see what the Lord has for us in the text today. If you could open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, starting off in verse 22, or you could look up at the slide. But the children struggled together within her, and this is Jacob's mother, uh, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to acquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Okay, I wasn't going to pause here, but... Um, I'm pretty sure Esau means like hairy, right? Yeah. Um, I just had my first child like eight months ago, and, and his name's Paul. I didn't name him Esau, but, but he did have a head full of hair, which meant he had more hair than I did. Uh, a, a note that the, the birthing nurse was quick to point out uh, in the delivery room. Uh, and I, even with that, though, I would never name my kid Harry, like not, not, I mean, maybe H-A-R-R-Y, like, yeah, that, that's a fine name, but not H-A-I-R-Y, right? Like, Harry, like, uh, anyways. Uh, verse 26, afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Yeah, I don't know about the parent of the year award on the namings here, uh, uh, but Jacob here, not even out of the womb yet, and we see this, him as a baby striving. He's, he's grabbing onto the heel of his older brother, trying to pull him back in so he can be the first one out. Um, it's kind of an impressive feat if you think about it for a newborn. Getting birth, you know, like, it's a pretty hard process for a kid. You know, your head's getting, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and here he is, he's like, even in that state, he's like, no, I want to be first. I want to be in charge. And Jacob being born, he, and as he was born, 
he was kind of an interesting kid. But, but what's interesting about Jacob here, and something I didn't think realize at first, was that he likely grew up with his grandfather Abraham, too. So here, Jacob's born, and he's born to a rather godly guy named Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. Um, and they both were great examples of God's uh, faithfulness and, and obedience and just seeking after God. And Jacob also had a, a pretty awesome mother, right? Um, you know, she was given a prophecy that we just read that Jacob would become the father of a nation and that the older would serve the younger. So we, here we have Jacob. He's, he was born. He, he's basically kind of set up for spiritual success, if you will. Grew up in a very godly family. God has prophesied over him he's, you know, that he's going to become a leader, a father of a nation. And, and Jacob had a spiritual lineage that we would think would have produced the spiritual giant of a man. Not only having some of the godliest people to guide him, not only having this promise over him, he, you know, he had everything going for him. He had a, a full house, if you will, of, of spiritual blessings. But Jacob doesn't turn out as a spiritual giant. And if I'm honest with myself, this is another reason why I don't like Jacob. Maybe I should change the study, title of the study of all the reasons why I don't like Jacob. But here, you know, Jacob has all this potential, all this promise, all this, you know, and, and he utterly blows it in his life. We see Jacob starting again when he was born, to, and he's striving, he's striving against everyone in this never-ending quest to get more, achieve more, become more. And it was at this very moment as I'm studying Jacob that my heart begins to change a little bit here. As I was reading about how his name was named Heel Catcher, and even at the moment of his birth, he was striving and trying to do things his own way. And if I'm being honest, I teared up a little bit at this point. Seems kind of like a weird point to tear up. But the reason why is because God, in that way, I think you guys probably know, in that, that very loving and subtle way that God just kind of pokes you, <laughs> and, your, and your heart kind of gets cut open a little bit, and it, it hurts, but in a good way. Because I realized at that moment that the reason why I didn't like Jacob so much was because I saw so much of myself in Jacob. I'm a man who's constantly striving in all the things that I do. I have a very hard time just surrendering to God's timing and God's plan in my life. Always wanting to get things done in my own way, in my own time. And I have a feeling many of you guys can probably relate to that. I know before I was married, in my 20s, I was constantly kind of striving, trying to find the right one that God would have for me. I was always constantly striving to, to try to become a better person, to be a better worker, better son. And, and the first question that kind of came to my mind is, okay, I'm a Christian. I should know better. I know that God is in control. Like, why is there this disconnect between this, this desire, this striving, me wanting to do all these things in my own strength, and I don't like the results that come out of it. Why am I doing this? And, and I think if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, it's because I lack faith. And I think this is the issue with Jacob's life. And, and the reason why I call this out is Jacob, and I was talking about his lineage, I spent some time on that, because his lineage is representative of, of this dueling nature that exists within all of us within Jacob as well. On one hand, Jacob has this lineage of faithfulness and obedience to God. He has the examples of Isaac and Abraham, men that weren't perfect, but for the most part lived their lives seeking the Lord and serving him faithfully. But then on the other hand, Jacob has this lineage, this nature within him of, of disbelief, of unfaithfulness, of Adam and Eve who refused to follow after God, who weren't faithful and and blew it by not eating an apple, but eating some other kind of fruit, right? And, and this is me. If I look at myself honestly, I have this dueling nature within me. I have a side that, that desires to serve the Lord and to surrender everything to him. And yet there's this other side of my nature, this other lineage, if you will, of, of sinfulness and of disobedience and of rebellion against God, of, of disbelief in God. I have a spiritual nature as a born-again believer, and I have this sinful nature of a fallen man. And so then, then the next question is, is like, okay, Lord, like how can, I, how can I get out of this loop? How can I get more faith? 
Does anyone happen to know Romans 10, 17? I bet you guys do. You probably just don't know the scripture reference. Faith comes by and hearing. Amen. So faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Okay, so, all right. So Lord, I need to, I need to get more in the word. I need to hear from you more. I need, I need more faith. And then my mind goes to the next step. It's like, well, if that's where faith comes from, where does my disbelief come from? Where does my lack of faith come from? Why, why is it seemingly growing at times? And I allude to, I think part of that is our sinful nature, right? We're, we're sinners. But I think also it comes from hearing and hearing from the world rather than the word. It's amazing what a single letter can do. The difference between hearing from the word of God and hearing from the world is a single letter. And yet that single letter makes all the difference in our lives. And certainly our society, the world that we live in, is a great example of a society that, that not only tolerates strife, but celebrates it, worships it even. Striving is defined as making great efforts to achieve or obtain something. Some of the words similar to strife are to drudge, to hustle, to slave, to struggle, to toil even. Society, our society, values people that work to mental and physical exhaustion, doesn't it? To achieve the next job title, that next promotion, the next pay raise so we can buy the newest gadget, the better car, the, the nicer house, whatever. To beat the, the Joneses. But these aren't the only things. It's not these materialistic things in which we can strive, is it? I personally stri you know, strive in my own strength about wanting to be a better husband, about wanting to be a better father, about being a better brother and a son, a better pastor, a better worker for my boss, a better, all these things. I want to be better. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be better, right? God calls us to a higher standard. But what's wrong is when I try to become those things in my own strength when I'm striving to become godly without God. And then when I stop and think about the, the absurdity of that, I mean, think about that statement. I want to become more godly in my own strength without God. How can I become more godly of a man without God? It's stupid. And yet that is exactly what strife is. It's stupidity, and I, and I seem to thrive on it. Just, I want to drive this home. The things that we often find ourselves striving for are not sinful in themselves. What's sinful is trying to achieve those things outside of God's will, outside of God's plan, outside of God's timing, outside of God's strength. We all tend to strive, I think, in some way, shape, or form. It's driven out of discontentment, either wanting more than what God has laid out for us or often wanting it sooner than when God has planned it for us. We all have little Jacobs, if you will, in our hearts. Now, Jacob obviously didn't just strive at his birth, but strived all of his life. First, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 31, we see, by taking advantage of his brother, by cheating him out of his birthright, out of his inheritance. Starting in verse 31, but Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. And he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, I want to pause here for a second um, growing up reading this, I kind of thought Esau was an idiot. <laughs> um, and, and as a kid, at least, this, the story was presented to me as Esau comes back from in the forest, you know, playing hunter and gatherer or whatever, and, and he comes back to camp, and there's Jacob with a hot bowl of stew, and, and, and you know, Esau looks maybe a little hungry. He's like, oh, you know, you know got a protein, you know, load up, got to build these muscles, I'm big and hairy. Um, and, and, but that's not really what happened here. I mean, if we look at this, Esau is likely on the verge of starvation. I don't think he's exaggerating here when he says, hey, I'm about to die, what's my birthright worth, right? So, and, and I, want, I want to drive this point home because Esau isn't being stupid, he's desperate. Esau is starving, he's weakened, he's on the verge of death, and Jacob, his brother, doesn't come running to rescue his, his, his other brother Esau. He doesn't come here to, to save him, to rescue him, to bring him some food. 
to, to pull him back. Esau was out hunting probably for the camp, for Jacob himself. The stew that, that Jacob probably provided to Esau was probably filled with meat that Esau had hunted before. And Jacob refuses just to help his brother out as Esau was helping the camp, but rather he sees an opportunity here to take advantage of his brother. This is horrible. This is deplorable. This is like a human rights violation. I mean, if we saw this in today's society, we'd want to lock the person away and throw away the key. I mean, this, this, Jacob is a scumbag. And, and Jacob here, he, he's, he sees an opportunity to take advantage of his brother and steal what is rightfully Esau's, his inheritance. And in the, old, in the Bible, the oldest was the one that was guaranteed, you know, all the family stuff. Like, that's what they would get. That's the privilege of the oldest. And Jacob here steals that from Esau. In a moment of, of weakness, of a struggle with Esau on the verge of his own death. So yeah, Jacob's a jerk. Um, but then he doesn't stop there. Later on in Genesis chapter 27, Jacob isn't content just stealing Esau's inheritance, physical inheritance. But he also steals Esau's spiritual inheritance, his blessing as the oldest. Genesis chapter 27 verse 36, Esau said after being uh, after this uh, blessing was stolen, he says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. So if you don't know this or you don't remember, Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives his blind father by wearing fur on his arm so he appears hairy like his brother, to steal and deceive his... This is the part that boggles my mind. His, his father is on his deathbed, and his thought is, I'm going to deceive my dying blind father to steal the spiritual blessing that he has for my older brother. Jacob wasn't content just with all the physical assets of the family. He wanted the spiritual as well. How messed up is that? So Jacob, he takes advantage of his blind father through deception and he steals Esau's blessing. And at this point, Esau, I think, is rightfully kind of upset. <laughs> Jacob, his younger brother, has, has stolen everything from him, has stolen all of his rights as being the firstborn, has stolen his inheritance, has stolen his spiritual blessing, has stolen all of it. And so Esau, in, I think, an understandable state, threatens to kill Jacob. It's like, next time I see that guy, I'm gonna, he's going to get it. And so Jacob, with the help of his mother, yet again, flees the camp and um, gets out of town. Now, when, again, when I first read the story, I think of Jacob maybe in his te late teens, early 20s. Okay, he's, he's an adult. He probably should know better. But no, no, no. Jacob was likely about 77 years old here. Think about that. This is a growing man. This is a man that has lived a pretty long life at this point. You would think he would have, like, kind of gotten past this. He would have known better. You know, no, 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 no. This is a man to his core is a striver, is a cheat, is all these horrible things. But God doesn't leave him there. God doesn't leave us there. And as Jacob is fleeing his family home, as he's fleeing Esau, he meets God in a place called Bethel. And let's read how Jacob responds to God uh, as he meets him in Bethel in Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 15. And we'll get back to actually what is going on in the context here in a second. But God says to Jacob, in, excuse me, God says to, yeah, God says to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And then Jacob responds to God here, in starting in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my house, father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Think about that statement for a second. You can be my God. I'll take your promises of safety. I'll take your promises of food, of clothing, of all these delicious, amazing things. But I'm only going to take these things. And I'm only going to call you my God if you serve me. If you keep doing things the way I want to do things. If I keep going the way that I'm going to go. I'm not going to submit to your will, God. But rather... I'll take your blessings as long as you go along with what I want. How moronic is Jacob here? He's telling the creator of the universe here, 
like, okay, yeah, yeah, you can help me, but you got to submit to what I want to do. How audacious. And at this moment, I realized, like, hey, strife is, has a pretty close cousin, is pretty closely related to, to something I think we all know as pride. What is pride fundamentally other than thinking that we're greater than God? It's this mentality that I'm in control, that I'm going to do things my way, that really shows us what, how we view ourselves in relationship to God, that we are greater than him. And, and I think, even though I think a lot of us would never verbally say that, we certainly, I know I do, act that way a lot. And I can't tell you growing up how many Christians I would say even would fully live that way, not even partially surrendered to God. And, and they basically their lives are saying, I'll accept you as my savior. I'll take the get out free from hell pass. I'll take you as my savior. I'll take your gifts and your blessings and your promises. But I'm going to keep doing things my own way. I'm going to keep living my life the way I want to. There's no surrender. So many people are all about Jesus when it comes to him as the sacrifice, as our savior. But very few people claim Christ as their Lord. And I would say no one fully on this side of eternity has claimed Christ as their Lord 100%. That's sin, right? Anytime we don't fully submit to the Lord, we're sinning. And I know I don't fully submit to the Lord. I don't fully, can fully claim blamelessly that Jesus is my Lord. I certainly desire that. Anyways, Jacob continues this lifestyle first with his you know, father, his brother, now with God. And as he's fleeing his camp, he's heading towards his, his mother's brother, Laban, his uncle Laban. And in Genesis 30, and when you read it later this week, uh, you'll see that Jacob cheats his uncle out of a lot of livestock by selectively breeding. He's like the first geneticist on the planet, I guess. Um, his sheep to gain more for himself. And when you read this chapter, you would probably agree that Laban definitely deserves what he got. Uh, Jacob, if I had to like guess where he got all this conniving and, and cheating behavior, he probably learned it from his uncle Laban. Um, but regardless, Jacob's actions here and his response to Laban by cheating him out of all this livestock isn't the godly response. And so if we look at Jacob's life and his resume so far, we really see, we see him starting with this defrauding his brother, deceiving his father, tells God that he's going to do things his own way and now cheats his uncle. Wherever he goes, he burns bridges. And um, fortunately, God wasn't going to leave Jacob in this state. He had eternal plans for him. As Jacob flees Laban after working for him for 20 years, so if you think about it, he's 97 years old at this point. He's fleeing his uncle after stealing livestock. He, he comes across and he hears reports of his brother Esau coming for him. 400 men. And it's interesting because now Jacob, all those bridges that he's burned has left him with nowhere to go. He's upset the guy behind him. He's really upset the guy in front of him. He's got nowhere to turn. What's interesting here is that Jacob has had an encounter with God. God has promised him safety and peace. But Jacob doesn't remember this. He seemingly, I think it's part of the whole not surrendering bit. So he doesn't take any comfort or courage from the promise that God had given him. We find Jacob distressed at Esau's coming with 400 men. And once again, he schemes and attempts to buy his brother off. And what he does is he sends his brother a bunch of livestock trying to buy him off, trying to appease his anger. And which brings us to the second encounter that he has while he's on his way to see Esau. And point number two, when Jacob encounters God, when we encounter God, it often leads to brokenness. So if you turn with me to Genesis 32, chapter, verses 22, or you can read from the slide. Verse 22, And he, Jacob, arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven sons, and crossed over the fort at Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Okay, let's pause here at verse 23. So Jacob gets up in the middle of the night, and it seems like an odd time to want to cross a river. And I, I kind of wonder when I saw this, I wonder why. And I think the reason why is, what happens when we're afraid? What happens when we're anxious? What happens to our sleep? It doesn't happen. We get insomnia. We're, we're you know, especially someone like Jacob, if, if he's anything like me, 
I'm constantly trying to work out plans and, and contingencies and try to figure out how I'm going to get through something. And Jacob, I could just see him just sweating, as I am, because it's kind of warm, um, and just freaking out. Like, how am I going to make it through this? How am I going to, you know, uh, trick my way out of this? And he just can't figure it out. He's, he can't sleep. He's afraid. So continuing on in verse 24, just think of Jacob in this state. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So two things to note. God is cool. <laughs> Let's just start there. God is cool. I can end a statement there. The reason why God is cool here is because God keeps meeting Jacob at moments in his life where he's in great trouble. First, when he's fleeing his Esau the first time, and now when he's fleeing his uncle Laban, heading back to encounter Esau, God shows up. That's pretty gracious of God, creator of the universe, who last time he talked with Jacob, basically told J Jacob told him, like, you got to do things my way. And yet God still continues in his grace to meet Jacob where he needs him. God is being exceedingly gracious to Jacob. God is exceedingly gracious to us. God also comes to Jacob at night here when he is alone. God also, as you read this week, when, God, when Jacob met God the first time in Bethel, it was at night and Jacob was alone. And I find that God often only speaks to us when we're quiet enough to hear his voice. When Jacob finally is unable to scheme or plan any further, He's being forced into a state of surrender. Now, one thing I was thinking about as I was reviewing this this morning is there's two different ways that we can encounter God. We can either encounter God as we seek him, or we can wait for God to encounter us on his terms when we're at a state where we're finally able to listen. And I would encourage you all, spend time encountering God proactively rather than reactively. Don't wait until things get so bad that we are forced into a position of surrender and encountering God, but rather seek time where it's quiet and you're alone and you can spend time with God and encounter him. Anyways, verse 25. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, go, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go until you bless, unless you bless me. Now, we find out in a minute that this man that Jacob is wrestling with is God, or at least an angel of the Lord. So why does God need to leave before daybreak? He's God. Well, what's the deal? He's all-powerful. He's the creator of the universe. And I think the reason why is because it's in Jacob's best interest. One of, you know, the guys in the Old Testament that we kind of hear about is a dude by the name of Moses, right? Very godly man, way more godly than I think Jacob is here. And when Moses asked to see God's face, what does God say? He says, no. He goes, but you can see my afterglow. You can see the presence of me as I pass by. And, and the reason why, I think, is because God is so holy, so perfect, so righteous, so uh, this very nature and essence of him is perfection and, and righteousness. That in being a sinner, being imperfect, being unrighteous, being unholy, being in the presence of perfection, of pure holiness, the very nature of being pure means being without, being perfect, being without imperfection. And so if pure holiness was in a position of being in the presence of unholiness, the, the very nature of holiness would require unholiness to be gone. So what would that mean for a person like Jacob? What would that mean for us if we weren't saved and covered in the blood of Christ? That would mean that if we were to encounter God, we would be instantly dead because God's holiness de demands it. The very nature of holiness is perfection and without blemish. And if we sin, if we are not perfect, then we cannot be in the presence of God. So what's happening here? I think God is in the shadow of night shielding Jacob from his, his pure holiness. He's protecting Jacob. And if Jacob were to hold on and not let him go, if the, if the sun rose and exposed who he was wrestling with, why Jacob sees him as just a man rather than God himself is because God had to pull himself back. He couldn't fully reveal himself, otherwise Jacob would die on the spot. So even in this wrestling, even in, this, in God wanting to be let go out of the, the grip was because God wanted to preserve Jacob. Now, 
Verse 27, so he said to him, what is your name, this man? God says, and Jacob responds with Jacob. This isn't some LinkedIn exchange of contact info. This isn't just me trying to identify who I am. In biblical times, the name was more than just a name. It was a, a, an attribute of who you are. It was like calling out, this is who I am. Jacob is saying, hey, I am a heel catcher. I am a conniver. I am uh, someone who is a master of his own domain. This is, I do what I want to do. I'm, I'm a schemer. In disclosing his name, Jacob is doing more than just saying his name. He's making a confession of his character. This confession, this acknowledgement of his name, I think finally allows for healing in his life, for a new nature, for a new name, a new freedom to live in a new way. And is that not the case with us in our own salvation as Christians, right? What, what has to come first? There has to be an acknowledgement of our sinful nature, of who we are, of our sinfulness, of our state, of our need. And this is what Jacob is saying here is, I am a sinner. I, this is who I am. I, I, this, is, this, is all, this is all I got. And God meets Jacob here in this moment of brokenness where Jacob finally confesses that he is not perfect, that he is a sinner. And God's response is glorious here. God doesn't pronounce judgment on Jacob. He doesn't condemn Jacob. But rather he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed. Jacob now learns that he shall no longer be called Jacob. He's no longer bound to the stigma of being a heel, a heel catcher and a supplanter, a conniver. And the original Hebrew text indicates more than just a name change here, but a spiritual transformation of the very nature of who Jacob is. The new name given to Jacob is Israel. And the explanation following is that Jacob has struggled with God and with men you have succeeded. Now, the meaning of Israel is much debated. It can mean that God rules, it can mean that God heals, it can mean that God judges. Yet within the context of this text, it seems to mean that Israel means that God will rule, or let God rule. Up to this point, Jacob's life and his name could have very well been called Israel Jacob, or let Jacob rule, or Jacob rules. But it's in this moment, in this confrontation with God, that he is broken. He finally meets an individual he cannot overcome. He can't beat, he can't uh, trick Jacob has struggled with God and with men, you have succeeded. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name then, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Penel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Penel means the face of God. Seeing someone face to face isn't always just uh, seeing physically their face, but rather seeing someone's true nature, who they really are. He had a direct encounter with the person of God. Now he says, my life has been preserved. In other words, Jacob's recognition is that none other than God himself stands before, stood before him and gives to Jacob the assurance that Esau won't hurt him. So he crosses over, in verse 31, he crosses over Peniel, which is just a more common name for Peniel. Um, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Verse 32, therefore to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. As Jacob departs this place, he leaves with him two things. He has a new name and he has a new limp. Both of these things will be forever reminded of him that in God, Jacob met for the first time someone he couldn't overpower and, he and someone he deserved to surrender to. God had broken Jacob, broken him out of his sinfulness, his bondage to striving, and into a position of surrendering to God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 33, starting off in verse 1. Or you can just look up on the slides. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front. Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them, bowed himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Verse 5, And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? 
So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Now, this is evidence that there's been genuine change in Jacob. Why? Because the Jacob of old would have instinctively stayed behind. He would have been the last person to confront Esau. And we see this in in the earlier chapters. Um, But now Jacob is in the front of the party. He's got courage all of a sudden. And I think that courage is from the fact that he now firmly believes and has faith in the promise that God has given him. In addition to this newfound confidence, there's also a shift in attitude here. Jacob bows down to Esau. Before the expectation of Jacob's was always that others would bow down to him, that he would rule, that he would come out on top, that he deserved it all, that people would meet his needs in his way. Yet here, Jacob, in humility, bows down to his brother. And I think the reason why is when we are in submission to God, especially in the, in, in, in the family of Christ, there's really only one pecking order. It goes God and then all of us. That means we're all on the same level playing field. That means it's very easy, and it should be very easy, for us to leave ego and pride at the door. Because there is only one God, there is only one Lord, there is only one numeral uno in the family of God, and that's God. The rest of us, we're all the same. We are all servants of God. And as such, we should have humility towards one another. There's no, there's no, no, no ranking system, no, no um, order of more spiritual or less. It's just God and the rest of us. We should have grace and humility and humbleness to one another. Now, in our focus on Jacob here, I don't want to miss another key key awesome thing here, is Esau's response to Jacob. It's a profound example of what forgiveness should be like. Here, Jacob literally stole everything from Esau, and 20 years later, when he finally sees his brother again, it's not hatred. It's not a desire to kill his brother. It's not vengeance it's not anything but rather it is forgiveness and love love Esau goes running towards his brother and embraces him and kisses him and his first question is like look at your family who are all these crazy people whoa not a hint of anger not a hint of of rage not nothing complete and utter forgiveness just love towards his brother and I think it paints a beautiful picture of God's love for us Right? Jacob, total sinner, and all he's getting is grace, love, and forgiveness from God and his brother. Verse 8, then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I meet? He's referring to all the gifts that Jacob had sent ahead of him. And Jacob responds, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, and as much as I have seen your face as through I've seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. So now not only is Jacob courageous, but he's being truthful. He's telling his brother Esau why he sent all the livestock. He's saying like, hey, I'm trying to bribe you. (laughs) I was trying to bribe you. I sent all this because I was afraid you were going to kill me. He's being upfront, he's being honest. And this is not a characteristic we have ever seen in Jacob's life before. It's always quite the opposite. He's always lying, he's always deceiving, always trying to find ways to get ahead. But here, Jacob is being honest, forthright. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and sire. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people that are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to sire and Jacob journeyed to sire. Nope. Jacob journeyed to Succoth. Horrible name for a place. Uh, Built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. These verses, unfortunately, show that the new new Jacob isn't perfect. He's still sinful. He still blows it. He's not allowing God completely to reign. He's being dishonest with his brother. He hasn't become Israel. He's still Jacob. Uh, He's making false promises and and offering misleading expectations to Esau here. And this brings us to our final point um, for the day and final encounter. 
Point three, encountering God leads to God's grace. Genesis chapter 35, starting off in verse one. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the Tiburneth tree, which was in, by Shechem. I love this verse in Jacob's life. Um, it shows a couple different things. One, that Jacob has been, been broken. He's submitting to God. He's being obedient to God. Um, the other thing it's showing is that Jacob got rid of these idols and cleansed his family uh, before seeing the Lord the second time in Bethel. And I think this is a sign of moral transformation in Jacob's life. This wasn't something that the Lord demanded that Jacob do. This is something that Jacob felt led to do, wanted to do, wanted to do because he was surrendering to the Lord. He realized who the Lord was and who he was. But it's also, unfortunately, there's, I think, oftentimes we do this too in our own lives. There's also a note here I want you to take away so God told Jacob to go to Bethel and to erect an altar to the Lord who appeared to you while you were fleeing your Esau brother. So God calls out why, what was going on in Jacob's life when he, was, when he met God the first time there. What does Jacob say to his own family about what the commandment was that God had given him? I will erect an altar there to the, to the God who answered me in my moment of need. He doesn't specifically address what was going on in his life. He doesn't repeat verbatim with what God was telling him to do. Rather, he kind of glosses over the fact that he was fleeing his brother Esau. And I think, I think when I read this, the reason why is because Jacob can't fully own the forgiveness of his past sin. He can't, he can't go there. He can't go back to that moment where he, he deprived and robbed his brother of everything, and that fled him. He wasn't fully free from his past sins. He hasn't fully accepted the forgiveness of those sins. He wasn't living a full life devoted to God. Verse 5, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were there with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. She was buried below Bethel under the Tiburneth tree. So the name, it was called Elon Bekath. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. Verse 9, And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants, after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. So Jacob is still a sinner. He's still blowing it. He's still not fully letting God reign. He's still being referred to here as Jacob, not Israel. And yet God continues to be gracious to Jacob. God reminds Jacob, hey, you're free from this nature. You no longer have to walk in it. Your name is, again, remember, it's Israel. It's let God reign. And even, again, even in the state of sinfulness, of not being perfect, God still chooses to bless Jacob, to bless Israel. He repeats the promises that he has given Jacob over the years. He's repeated the promises and the honor of the promises that, that he gave his forefathers. God protects Jacob by, by putting terror in all the nations when he's traveling back to the spot. And God continues to honor the promise they made to Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob, that Jacob would be the nation of the promise, of, of that Jesus would come down this line, the salvation of the world. 
And again, God chooses to use Jacob despite Jacob's carnality, despite Jacob's sinfulness. And unfortunately, while we never see Jacob called Israel again after this point in the Bible, Jacob's response to God in this encounter in Bethel is vastly different. He doesn't tell God that they were going to do things his way. Jacob just simply surrendered. By wonder, looking at Jacob's life, how different it would have been if Jacob had surrendered to God earlier on. If Jacob's response to God was vastly different, not telling God that we're going to do things his way, but rather God's way. And I think we could see what would have happened in Jacob's life by looking at Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph, his son, ended up becoming a, a, a picture of Christ through his humility and his surrendering to the Lord. This could have been potentially Jacob instead. Jacob and Joseph had nearly identical prophecies. Both of them were to have siblings bow down and serve them. Both of them uh, were promised to have a mighty people come from them. The big difference here is that Jacob did it his way and Joseph did it God's way. And I kind of wonder here, what would have happened to the rest of Jacob's siblings if they had seen a man like Joseph who lived in surrender to God rather than doing things in his own way? If, if his sons would have become different, would have been different, would have been godly men instead. If the nation that bears Jacob's name, the nation of Israel, would have been different if their, their father had surrendered to God rather than doing things his own way. Because like Jacob, the nation of Israel never fully lives up to its name. Israel, the nation, the people, never fully surrender to God at any given time. Just like Jacob. How different would the world be? How different things could have gone if Jacob had simply surrendered to God? So as we wrap up today, we've looked at Jacob's life and we saw three different times that God met with Jacob in three different encounters. First, we saw Jacob encounter God at Bethel and how this encounter with God revealed the nature of Jacob's heart, how he was a striver wanting to do things his own way. Second, we see God encounter with Jacob and Penel and how this encounter with God broke Jacob, resulting in a spiritual transformation in Jacob's life. Third, we see in this final encounter, Jacob encountering God again at Bethel, this time seeing God's grace with Jacob resulting in blessing in Jacob's life. I think if we look at this, we can directly apply our own lives to these three encounters. And I want to encourage you guys to have an encounter with the Lord starting today, this week. Spend time with him. Seek him out. Ask the Lord to show you your own heart. Reveal to you those areas where you might be striving, where you might be in sin, where you might be struggling, where you haven't given full uh, lordship over to Jesus. I encourage you when you, you spend time with God that you ask God to break you. That you ask God to humble you. That you ask God to give you a heart of surrender to him. It's a hard prayer and, and God will honor it and God will answer it. I encourage you to, to ask for it. I guarantee you, your life will never, be a change, will never be the same. It will be forever changed if you live a life fully surrendered and broken before the Lord. It'll be a life like you've never, ever, ever thought you could live. It's a life I certainly desire so much for myself and for my own son. Something I pray every night for him. Lord, I just pray for my son. Lord, I just so desire that he lives a life surrendered to you, that he lives a life obedient to you, that he lives a life seeking after you. Because, Lord, I desire that in my own life. And I know that my life can be so much more if I just give it all to you. And even though, and, and also want you to take away that you are going to blow it. You're going to fail. You're not going to always be surrendered to God. But God is incredibly gracious to us. And even in our own weakness, even in our own sinfulness, even in the fact that we cannot fully surrender to God, even despite the fact that we still strive, that we still try to do things in our own strength, that God is still gracious enough to meet us where we're at and to see us through it. He's still going to be there for us. He's still going to help us through it. He still desires to be close with us. And despite the fact that we, all of us, none of us, meet the potential of our lineage, 
the lineage that we have in Christ, that none of us live up to the potential of being completely and utterly surrendered to God, doing his will, that God is gracious enough to meet us where we're at. We will all sin before the day's out. And yet God will still be with us. God will still see us through it. God will still grow us. He will mature us until that faithful day where we go to heaven and we can hear those amazing, incredible words, well done, my good and faithful servant. May we all desire to grow closer to God, not in our own strength, not in our own ability, not in our own power. We can't do any of this on our own, but rather the call to action today is for you to do nothing. Do nothing but spend time and seek out the creator of the universe who loves you so deeply and so profoundly that he gave it all. He gave his own son so that you could be reunited with him. Take advantage of that precious, precious gift that God gave so he can spend time with you, so that your life can be encountered and transformed and that our lives may no longer be called Jacob, but rather may be called Israel. May God reign in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, please reveal to us in our hearts, Lord, those areas where we are not surrendered to you. Lord, where we are not seeking after you, where we are holding on and being little uh, kings of our own domain. But Lord, may we surrender all. May we rest. May we stop striving. May we stop trying to do things on our own. But Lord, that we would sit at your feet and rest. Lord, we just give it all to you, Lord. Help us with that, Lord. Lord, please use us and use this body for your plan and your purpose and your timing, God. May we not do it in our own strength, but rather, Lord, do it in yours. And Lord, we lift these things up in your precious, holy, gracious, incredible name. Amen.